Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, a historic strike hits one of America's major industries. What are we? One more time. President Biden's economic agenda is in the crosshairs as the United Auto Workers go on strike against Detroit's big three automakers, demanding higher pay and benefits. Auto workers help create America's middle class. How close is a deal that would end the strike? And will economic anxiety erode the president's standing in key battleground states? We'll get the latest from UAW President Sean Fain and Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. And more bad news for Biden, as his son Hunter is indicted on gun charges and the House GOP launches an impeachment inquiry alleging corruption by the president and his family. I think he could do better. I think he's trying, but he's not, he's, he's not strong enough. Plus, we'll have new CBS poll data to gauge how voters are thinking about the president's age and performance. Then, a prisoner swap with Iran is expected in the coming days. We'll get the latest from Congressional Intelligence Chairs, Republican Congressman Mike Turner, and Democratic Senator Mark Warner. Finally, a conversation with actor and director Sean Penn about his new documentary from the front lines of the war in Ukraine. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with United Auto Workers' simultaneous strike against Ford, General Motors and Chrysler parent Stellantis. Roughly 8% of the union's workers stopped work at plants in Ohio, Michigan and Missouri after their contracts expired Thursday night. The union says if they don't get a deal, they'll walk out of additional plants. Talks continued throughout the weekend and will resume with Stellantis tomorrow. Senior transportation correspondent Chris Van Cleve is in Toledo, Ohio with the latest. Hitting automakers in their bottom line. For a third day, nearly 13,000 United Auto Workers have pumped the brakes at plants in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri, striking after their union contract with the nation's big three automakers ran out. I'm here for the long haul. Yep. Long haul. If I have to be out here, rain, sleet, snow, thunderstorm, tornado, striking. I'm here. I don't think they're honking for the CEOs. And they're getting the backing of high-profile Democrats. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman joined the picket line, while Vermont's Bernie Sanders headlined a huge rally just feet from the Detroit Auto Show. It is totally reasonable for auto workers to finally receive a fair share of the record-breaking profits that their labor has produced. 
about an hour south of Detroit, there are 10,000 auto workers here in Toledo. More than half of them are now on strike at this Jeep plant. But that likely has more to do with what's built here. The popular and lucrative Jeep Wrangler and Jeep Gladiator, vehicles that could soon be in short supply on dealer lots. Most of us can't even afford the vehicles that, that we're building. Robert Vasquez has worked at the Toledo plant since 1997. We're in it to the end. You know, we, we want our fair share. The union is seeking a 36% raise with cost of living increases to counter inflation, the unwinding of concessions made during the Great Recession, and worker protection as the companies transition to less labor-intensive electric vehicles. They also want a four-day work week and a return of pensions. Both are non-starters for the automakers. The big three are offering about a 20% raise. It's a record from a gross wage increase perspective in our 115-year history. Can GM be successful if you met all their demands? Uh, actually, um, no. The life of the contract, the initial demands were over $100 billion. Uh, we're, we still have a ways to go. GM now expects to idle a plan in Kansas, and Ford announced 600 temporary layoffs blamed on ripple effects from the strike. That was Chris Van Cleve reporting from Toledo. We turn now to United Auto Workers President Sean Fain. Uh, good morning to you, sir. Uh, you have said that you had reasonably productive conversations with Ford yesterday. Does that mean they're going to put a more generous offer on the table? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having us. And, uh, you know, that's up to them. Uh, that's, you know, the reason we're in this situation right now is because all three of the big three companies chose to wait. They chose not to negotiate for the eight weeks we had. We started this back in July, and we told them then, don't wait till the last minute or you're going to find yourself in a bad position. And unfortunately, they chose to wait till the last week to get down and start talking to get serious about this, and that's where we are now. And uh, if we don't get better offers and we don't get down and take care of the members' needs, then uh, we're going to amp this thing up even more. Well, you said progress is slow. Uh, will you order strikes at additional plants this week? Are you preparing for that? Uh, we're prepared to do whatever we have to do. So the membership is ready. The membership is fed up. We're fed up with falling behind. It's been decades of falling behind, and, 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 and especially this past decade, in the, the most wealthiest times in the history of these companies. There is no excuse. These companies have made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last 10 years, $21 billion in the last six months alone. And our workers' wages and, and, and conditions have went backwards. You're asking for 36% pay raises, our reporter just laid out there. Stellantis said they've offered 21%. What are you expecting out of tomorrow's negotiation with them? That seems forward movement. We've, we've asked for 40% pay increases. And the reason we asked for 40% pay increases is because in the last four years alone, the CEO pay went up 40%. They're already millionaires. Right. You know, it's shameful that uh, you know one of the one of the leaders of the corp one of the corporations sitting in his second home in Acapulco while we're bargaining, rather than being at the bargaining table. And so, you know, our demands are just. We're asking for our fair share in this economy and the fruits of our labor. So, 21% is a no-go for you. It's definitely a no-go, and we've made that very clear to the companies. Uh, Ford CEO said last November that electric vehicles are going to require 40 percent less labor to produce than combustion vehicles. I know it may not be the intention, but I wonder how you think this transition to electric vehicles may be eating away at your union strength. Well, I don't believe it's eating away at our union strength. Um, it is the way it is right now. Unfortunately, uh, this, is, this is what's wrong with our economy, and this is what's wrong with America right now. The billionaire class keeps taking more and more, and the working class keeps getting left behind. And the unfortunate part in this transition right now, like always, go back to the, go back to the Great Recession. The banks got bailed out by our taxpayer dollars, and they just kept on doing what they do while working-class people's homes got foreclosed on. Automakers got bailed you go out, back too. To the, you know, <clears throat> yes, automakers and got bailed out. And taxpayers lost again, money on that. The workers, were unfairly, the, the workers were unfairly blamed for everything that was wrong with those companies. It was bad, bad decisions on the parts of the companies that put us in that position. And the sad reality is, you know, the workers paid the price for that. We made all the, all the, all the sacrifices. And after a decade of massive profits... 
Yep. The workers have went backwards. Our wages have went backwards. Our benefits have went backwards. The majority of our members have zero retirement security now. And well, meanwhile, mm -hmm. it's insulting that a CEO gets on air this la in the last few days and says that her $29 million salary is justified by her performance. No, yeah. it's not. It's justified by the performance of the worker on the backs of the workers and by paying them poverty wages. And that's unacceptable in this country. Well, I know. You've also said, though, it's a shell game to talk about, you know, CEOs handing back part of their money. You're talking about something that's more fundamental to the structure of this entire sector of the economy. And that's why I'm asking you about the transition, because many of the, the factories in this country that make batteries for those electric vehicles are not unionized. Um, and that is where the White House is pushing the industry to go, more towards those electric vehicles. Is it, is that, isn't that part of this challenge for you, leverage-wise? So the challenge is, you know, where we're going to go as a country. You know, again, I, I get back to this point. Our tax dollars are financing a massive portion of this transition to EV. We believe in a green economy. Uh, we have to have clean water. We have to have clean air. Um, anyone that doesn't believe global warming is happening isn't, isn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but this transition has to be a just transition. And a just transition means if our tax dollars are going to finance this transition, then labor can't be left behind. And as it stands right now, the workers are being left behind. The companies want to talk about being competitive. Yeah. It's not about being competitive. Com competitive is, is a code word for race to the bottom. What they want is they want to pay us poverty wages so they can keep on making billions more in profits and they can keep enriching the shareholders and the CEOs and the corporate executives while the workers Pay the, pay, the, pay the price for it well, and get left behind. It's got to stop in this country. Ford has said that your demands would more than double the labor costs, which are already significantly higher than the labor costs at Tesla, at Toyota, and other foreign-owned automakers who don't use union labor. So how do you make the case that these automakers need to keep investing uh, in more expensive union shops rather than move to these right-to-work states? First off, labor costs are about 5% of the cost of the vehicle. They could double our wages and not raise the price of, of the vehicles and still make billions in profits. It's a choice. And the fact that they want to compare it to how, how pitiful Tesla pays their workers and other companies pay their workers, that's what this whole argument's about. Workers in this country got to decide if they want a better life for themselves instead of scraping to get by paycheck to paycheck while everybody else walks away with the loot. Yeah. And, you know, when we bargain good contracts, going back to the founding of this union, people join the UAW because we set the standard. People mm -hmm. join unions because they, it's a better way of life. And that's what we got to do. We have to bargain a good contract, and then we're going to go organize these yeah. places and, and bring these workers in so they get their fair share of the economy that they get nothing of right now. Most of these workers in those companies are scraping to get by, so that greedy CEOs and greedy people like Elon Musk can build more rocket ships and shoot themselves in outer space. And that's unacceptable. President Biden says he's the most pro-union president in American history, but you haven't endorsed him. What is it going to take for you to do that? Uh, our endorsements are going to be earned. We've been very clear about that, no matter what politician How it is. How does he earn it? Um, we expect action. We expect action, not words. And, and you know, this, this fight we're in right now, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, uh, people are talking about them trying to interject themselves into, into our negotiations. You know, this, this negotiating, our negotiators are fighting hard, our leadership's fighting hard. It's going to be one at the negotiating table with our negotiating teams, with our members manning the picket lines and our allies out there. Uh, who the president is now, yeah. who the former president was or, or the presidents before them isn't going to win this fight. This fight is all about one thing. It's about workers winning their fair share of economic justice in, okay. in, instead of being left behind as they have been in the last decades. We will be watching closely. Sean Fenn, thank you for your time today. And we did ask all of the big three automakers to come on the show this morning and they declined. We turn now to Democratic Congressman Debbie Dingell, who has longtime ties to GM and the auto industry. She represents Detroit and is in Southfield, Michigan this morning. Uh, Congresswoman, you have said these are the most important negotiations you witnessed in your lifetime. You have longstanding ties to these automakers. Is it really more significant than when the Bush and Obama administrations bailed out the automakers? 
Yes, it's far more significant. And I'll tell you why. Those days were these companies were facing bankruptcy. And quite frankly, it was because of management decisions. And the auto workers were scared for their jobs and they stepped up and they gave away their cost of living increases to help. They gave in 2008 and 2009. Now the companies are back in a strong position, but we're really where the rubber hits the road. Margaret, we are in a transition of this industry. We're competing in a world marketplace I, uh, that we are. Some of the countries in Europe, you'll see in the last quarter, the electric vehicle sales are more than 50% of the sales. That's what we're competing in. And we have to make sure the worker is part of this transition. It should not be either or, it needs to be both. We gotta make sure the worker can afford to buy that electric vehicle, that they're gonna have the support that they do. And we've gotta make sure we're paying a fair and decent wage. And all workers, everybody in this country benefits when workers are paid well. But those electric vehicle battery manufacturing plants, so many of them are joint ventures that they are partially foreign owned. They are not unionized. That's a choice. How do you reverse that? The, well, I mean, that is something that's very real. And on the table right now uh, is really there's probably only one uh, battery plant that may be under the master agreement. We've got a, It's not an easy question. It's not easy to deal with. And I also want to say something else that everybody doesn't mm -hmm. understand. There, yeah, Tesla does have a huge discrepancy uh, in what they're paying their employees. And most people in this country can't afford a Tesla. Even right. a, a lot of executives can't afford to buy a Tesla. But uh, the fact of the matter is that most at a Toyota, I've looked at the studies, Almost all workers at auto plants benefit from where these negotiations go. This is where the rubber hits the road. We gotta figure out how we're gonna do this transition, how we're going to go from the transition of an internal combustion engine, which, and pay people who are making that battery a decent wage, similar to what they're making for ICE, and they're gonna be new jobs and different jobs that are gonna come from this transition. But it's not a talking point moment. This is yeah. a real, intentional, hard moment. President Biden said he was sending his staff to Detroit. They're not there right now. Um, you, we, you just heard Sean Fain say something about the White House injecting themselves into negotiations. Uh, do you think the president White House should intervene? First of all, I do not believe that the president should intervene or be at the negotiating table. I've said that yeah. from the beginning. But, you know, if anything that the pandemic has just taught us is that, like, who's in an office and who's working? I talk to Gene Sparling multiple times a day and have all summer. Uh, so uh, there are, I don't think they've got a role at the negotiating table. I think every one of us that are policymakers and other stakeholders need to understand what these issues are, what we can do to support those discussions at the table, and what we need to do coming out of these to help make a strong, viable, competitive industry that's employing American jobs. And I'm not going to let these electric vehicles be built in China. Even though someone else says they want some built 100% in China, I'm fighting to make sure they're here with good paying American jobs. Well, you know, Michigan, I don't have to Union tell you jobs. this, that it, it is a competitive state. We're going into an election year. I just asked Sean Fain what it would take for the union to endorse President Biden, who says he's the most pro-union president ever. And he said that has to be earned. That's a pretty big uh, you know, I'm statement. Well, first of all, he's also said that Donald Trump said would be a disaster, and I could go into that at length. But I really have to tell you that I think that we got to keep these two issues totally separate. I'm really worried about what's happening at the table, and that it's going to set, it's going to, it is going to determine the future of the auto industry in Michigan. I want to keep presidential politics out of this and do what's right from a policy perspective. Then we can talk about the presidential election. Michigan's a competitive state. I keep telling you all, it's a purple state. It's not right. a blue state. But when we get a good agreement that keeps America strong, keeps our workers strong, then I think they'll know who they're going to support. And they're going to support someone that supports the American worker. Sure, but Democrats love to say that somebody, they are the, the way that, that doesn't care about. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, you know, everybody's like, 
Donald Trump says he's going to swoop in and do a pickup. And he doesn't care about their pay raises. He doesn't care about COLA. He doesn't care about retirement. He doesn't care about pensions. He doesn't care. I mean, last time he campaigned in Michigan, he told the companies they should move to other states where they pay people less money. So I, I think that we all as policymakers need to understand the issues. How do we support this transition yeah. so that we are staying competitive in this country? But I want to do presidential politics after this is done at the table and we are keeping a strong, viable okay. industry, which is make the workers part of the yeah. success. Debbie Dingell, uh, Congresswoman, I appreciate your insight. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Our latest CBS News poll shows President Biden in a precarious position as he seeks re-election. Down one point, within the margin of error, in a hypothetical matchup with the Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, whom he beat by 7 million votes in 2020. Questions about Mr. Biden's age seem to be taking a toll. Only one-third of voters think he would definitely finish a second term if re-elected. As for Trump, just over half are sure he'd finish his term if returned to the White House. Joining us now to discuss it is our Elections and Surveys Director, Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, good to have you here. The Vice President, Kamala Harris, told me last week Joe Biden is going to be just fine doesn't seem like voters are convinced. Uh, they're not entirely convinced. And there is concern, and that speaks to uncertainty in this way. When people don't think that a candidate is going to finish a second term, they're less likely to vote for that candidate. And that's certainly happening in the case of Joe Biden. It's also happening with Donald Trump. Now, there's also a component here when people are asked, do you think these candidates are physically fit enough, are mentally, cognitively fit enough? And neither one of them inspires overwhelming confidence here. But it's not accruing well for the president right now. Um, you see a substantial number of voters who aren't sure that he is, and that is helping Donald Trump, those voters switching. And, you know, even in the case of Donald Trump, you don't have an overwhelming number of voters who think he is physically fit or cognitively fit. The reason that all speaks to uncertainty is that, well, people don't like uncertainty, but when they're making a presidential vote, you're thinking about, well, if this person isn't going to finish their second term, then what am I going to get for my vote? And that creates a new wrinkle in the decision process. So what else do voters say they want from a president? Well, this is important because you start with Joe Biden. Voters have always told us they think he's calm. They think he's predictable. Those qualities really met the moment in 2020 during the pandemic when he was running against then President Trump. Well, today they want more. They want someone that they think is tough. They want someone that they think is energetic. And those are qualities they do not ascribe to Joe Biden. But Donald Trump does do better on those qualities. And that's important. And then there's this. Um, Donald Trump's voters overwhelmingly say one reason they're voting for him is they think things were better mm -hmm. under him. And that relates to the economy. It relates to people's finances. I mentioned the pandemic. We look at whether people say they're doing better or worse now than they were before the pandemic. And people say they are not. By two to one, they say that they are still worse off than better. And those people are voting for Donald Trump. That's kind of classic. If you're not better off, you vote for the out party. It's interesting. People are focused on those first years of the Trump presidency rather than the pandemic years of the Trump presidency. But we're really early in this, Anthony. 
Why are you polling when we don't officially have a Republican nominee, a head-to-head race? Yes, it is very early. But number one, you have Donald Trump so far out in front in the Republican primaries. The indictments haven't hurt him. They've only really helped him. So you have this presumption that we're going to get a rematch. And that is unusual. And look, anytime you have something that's unusual, you want to understand it as soon as possible. Um, Another point for context here, right? Democrats are going to look at this. That is a shift, as you said, from Biden fairly comfortable 2020 win to where it is now. In the summer of 1995, Bill Clinton was down to Bob Dole. In the summer of 2011, Barack Obama's disapproval rating was hitting all-time highs. Both of them turned it around and got reelected. Okay, maybe that gives Democrats hope, but this certainly is is a shift from what we saw in 2020. So what is it that people think is at stake? Ah, well, I should also say we're polling on a race people don't seem to want, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, which is to say when we ask people how they feel about getting this rematch, they said that they think that means politics in the U.S. is broken. And, you know, but look, having said that, um, they also see really high stakes here. And they say that not only is democracy and rule of law potentially at stake, but maybe in a sign of the times, it's only going to be safe if their guy wins. Of course. Anthony Salvanto, thank you for sharing your insights. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We are joined now by the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner. Good to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, A lot to get to with you, but I want to start on what's happening within the next eight days. We may be facing a a government shutdown. Um, Back in June, it took Democratic votes to push through that debt ceiling deal. The speaker announced an impeachment inquiry. Isn't this going to make it harder for you to work across the aisle and to do something like avoid a government shutdown? No, not really. There are a number of things, obviously, where there's you know, bipartisan consensus, one of which, as you indicated, was the budget uh, debt deal. Uh, Kevin led in that. The American public wanted a change from the Biden policies of spending, working on closing the border, addressing the issues of China. And he delivered. And, you know, the American public have given the House, with a small margin of Republicans in, in control, the Senate... Democrats in control, small margin. They expect bipartisan solutions. <clears throat> Kevin has led in delivering those. This is certainly one where everyone wants the government to be functioning. We want to adhere to the deal. You got eight days. Move the country. For the, uh, yes. So what do we do here? I mean, is this a continuing re- resolution situation? Because it doesn't seem like House Republicans are on the same page. Well, I, you know, as you just said, it, it's probably going to result in the end in a bipartisan solution. The um, we're going we're gonna to pass a spending bill. That's what is going to be required, and we're going to do it. But it will require Democrats. You don't think the impeachment inquiry will cost you? Well, again, there, there are things that are important to the country and that for which people come together. And I think mm-hmm. this is one of those, that the country came together when, on the, um, the debt uh, budget deal. And at that time, investigations were already ongoing into the, the Biden uh, family businesses. And I think that's certainly something that's expected that will continue. Uh, One of the issues for some members of your caucus is the continued support for Ukraine. And we know President Zelensky is going to be here this week. Um, Can you meet with him and tell him he's going to get the 13 billion that the White House is asking for? Can you get your caucus to support it? Well, the House certainly and certainly the Republican caucus uh, overwhelmingly supports uh, aid for Ukraine. There will be issues over what the administration has asked for and what Congress ultimately gives. Um, Speaker McCarthy has made it clear that the White House should have come to us and worked on what the package was and not just sent it to the uh, to Capitol Hill for for dispensation. But at the same time, you know, Zelensky is a great spokesperson. He really makes the case better than anyone that this is a fight for democracy and that uh, Putin's goals are beyond well beyond Ukraine into Eastern Europe and into the Baltics. Um, having him here is going to be very, very persuasive. The last time we had votes on the House floor on the issue of aid for Ukraine, uh, nearly 300 members voted in an affirmative out of 435. A majority of the Republicans voted in the affirmative. And I think that will continue. But this is not going to complicate the vote to keep the government funded and open. You, you well, don't again, think this, is another, this is another this is another essential uh, item that we have to do. And right. this 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 was not included in, in the budget right. uh, debt limit deal with an understanding, though, because everyone knew. I mean, this is on your TV sets every day. Yeah. Everyone knows this is ongoing and this is going to require U- U.S. support. Um, you know, Zelensky has <clears throat> higher approval rating in the United States than any nationally elected official. Him coming here, I think, will be very persuasive. <laughs> 
even to the more conservative members of your caucus? Well, not everyone has to vote yes. If you get 300 out of 435, that's certainly overwhelming. I think we're going to be back there again. So I hear, do I hear you saying no government shutdown? I didn't say that. I said we're going to pass a spending <laughs> bill. We'll just have to see when. So what will we... Okay. <laughs> we'll st- stay tuned. <laughs> um, the White House is going to announce additional capabilities. They've said that. Do they get the long-range missiles to Ukraine that they're asking for, the attackums? I hope they do. I mean, the administration has consistently said no to everything Ukraine has said multiple times publicly and then ultimately recanted and provided them. What we know from this um, era of the conflict, Ukraine is still on the offensive, which was the goal of the offensive. Russia is on the defensive. Mm -hmm. There are a number of impediments that are making it difficult for that offensive to push Russia out. And at the same time, uh, Ukraine has to get additional ground and or longer range weapons to put Crimea at risk, which is where some of the assaults are coming from that that, are killing Ukrainians. So it's incredibly important that we provide them this capability. Uh, your committee was briefed by the White House within the past week about this expected prisoner swap with Iran. Um, their diplomatic mis- mission shared with us the list of Iranians they expect President Biden to pardon. Are you comfortable with this swap? Well, I mean, when, when we received our briefing at the committee, obviously we made known our, our concerns. I mean, whenever you put a price on American heads, you get an, a, an incentive for people to take more Hostages. You know, these, are, six billion in these are oil you know, billions and billions of right. dollars. And so that's a concern. The administration says we're really only giving them their own money, but right. it's still money that they didn't have. The other aspect is, is that these monies can be used to support terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, Hamas um, and you know, venturesome actions of, of Iran. The administration mm-hmm. says this is limited to humanitarian aid, but they also acknowledge that funds are fungible, which means they can use, move them around and will aid them in being able to do other things. So people are, are very concerned as to what this is as a pattern. The administration's answer is people shouldn't go to Iran. I, I certainly want to echo that also. People should not be going to Iran. You're not moving on a ban. A travel ban, though. No, not at this time. But I think that people in yeah. seeing this should know that uh, that they're at risk and they shouldn't go to Iran. Uh, I want to ask you, because you've made clear in the past you've been disappointed by the level uh, to which the intelligence community has shared with you um, their assessment of the classified documents investigations into both yes. the current and former presidents. Do you have any updates on that? Are you any more satisfied now? What they have done, they've shown us probably an equal amount of both Biden classified documents and Trump classified documents. And what you can see from looking at those is both have egregious items in them. None of these documents should have been out of a, of a controlled environment, both the Biden documents and the Trump documents. We don't know the status of the Biden special counsel, although, as you know, the Trump matter is, is currently moving in court. It's certainly curious that we don't know what's going on in the Biden matter. They have limited the amount of documents that we have seen to those that, that they would suggest are, are not subject to executive privilege or the types of documents that we would normally see. We want to see them all. Uh, there are already documents that are listed in the Trump uh, court pleadings uh, that are described in detail that we have not yet seen. And we are pushing to make certain that they provide those to Congress. But you have no reason to believe that they are in any way on equal footing in terms of the level of classification of documents? Or do you have any... I can tell you from the ones I've seen, they are equally egregious and equal classification issues that both Biden documents and Trump documents have the equal uh, concern and threat and equal classification. Uh, I have so much more to ask you about, but I have to leave it there right now to go to this commercial break. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, We'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
We turn now to Virginia Democrat Mark Warner. He is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Great to have you here. Thank you, Mark. I have to pick up where your Republican colleague just left off. Are the Trump and Biden classified documents that were in their personal possession and not in controlled areas equally egregious? Well, Margaret, three things quickly. One, the administration took way too long to get us these documents. Two, while Mike and I have a great working relationship, I believe, based on the documents I've seen, that there is a difference in terms of the potential abuse that came from the Trump documents. And third, it's one of the reasons why I've got bipartisan legislation that would reform the whole classification process. We way overclassify. Mm -hmm. We frankly should have a process in place so that no president or vice president ever takes documents uh, after they leave office. That is kind of lowest yeah. common fruit. We ought to get that passed. We've got part of that in the Intel authorization bill. I hope it becomes the law of the land so we can prevent this from happening going forward. You said based on documents you've seen, but you want to see more documents. We have actually, I'm about at 98% satisfaction okay. at this point. 98% satisfaction. Um, I, I, there's a lot more on the national security front that we're tracking right now, including this potential prisoner swap with Iran to bring five Americans home. Uh, are you comfortable with the trade? I've not gotten the brief. The Senate Intel Committee has not gotten the brief. We will be getting it shortly. Wasn't the staff briefed? Well, I can tell you, I have not you been weren't. personally briefed. Okay. Um, I think we need to start with the premise. It's always the policy of our country to try to bring back Americans who held hostage. That was not only under Biden, it was Trump, it was Obama, Bush. Uh, I want to hear what kind of constraints are being put on in this exchange in terms of what has been reported of the $6 billion that was South Korean payments to Iran that would be released. I want to hear that and get those details before I weigh in further. Because you have concern that money is fungible. I am. There is obviously. Money is fungible. The administration has said there are guardrails. I want to get a better description of those guardrails first. Um, you have been very active on artificial intelligence, and we talked about this uh, mm -hmm. back in January. Microsoft just announced a few days ago that China has a new capability to automatically generate images for use in influence operations to mimic American voters across the political spectrum and create controversy along racial, economic, and ideological lines. How much of a risk is this to our upcoming election? It's an enormous risk. And artificial intelligence, I've spent as much time on this, I think, as any member of the Senate. And I never spent something where you, the more time I spend, in certain ways, the more confused I get. The whole economics around these large language models, which used to be, you know, who had the most data, who had the most compute power would win, that fundamentally changed after Facebook released its so-called llama model into the wild in the spring. Uh, we just had a major session, Leader Schumer put together, had the kind of the who's who in the room. Mm -hmm. And what, it, what I'm concerned at is even the, the AI leaders who say they want rules, guardrails, uh, I'm concerned that when you actually put words on paper, will those major tech companies support that? Because you've seen we in social media have done zero. Now, in terms of China, China is a major player in AI. And where I think we ought to start where AI tools, whether it comes from China or domestically, could have the most immediate effect would be the public's faith in our elections, right. which Microsoft just cited. Hear, 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 election. hear me out on this. But the other area beyond elections mm -hmm. is faith in our public markets. These same tools could completely disrupt the confidence in our public markets by using these same deep fake right. tools. So I believe we ought to start, if we could put together an alliance mm -hmm. between the capitalists and the small D Democrats, we might at least get guardrails coming in the next year with the elections and with the concern about our markets. So you're, you're concerned not just about spooking, you know, the stock market. We're talking about misleading people going into an election. Congress isn't going to legislate ahead of the election, are they? I mean, I think Leader Schumer is, said it's the most difficult thing we've ever undertaken. This is why the notion of trying to solve it all, the bias questions, the whole question yeah. around deep fakes, the questions around what's called hallucination, where you get answers that have no relationship to what the question was asked. But we ought to at least start with some guardrails around trust in our public elections and trust in our public markets. There, I think we can move before our elections. I think it'll be bipartisan. Uh, let's start on that framing point. Mm -hmm. I think we could all agree there could be huge disruption in both of those areas. And that's where I'm focused my time. Um, 
you may have heard our CBS polling there at the top of the program. And one of the data points I want to show you here says when people compare their finances now to how they were before the pandemic, by two to one, they say they're worse, not better. And when they feel worse, they tell us they're voting for Donald Trump. How can President Biden win over those voters? Well, I think we've seen from President Biden's actual record, record amounts of job growth coming again after COVID. We've seen um, major legislation that are now law in infrastructure, in the so-called chip spill and transition in our energy economy. And most of that has only been about 10 cents on every dollar spent out. So I think the positive effects of that will really continue to Do penetrate. Do people this in Virginia feel that that you talk to? I, listen, I think there is a general feeling, oh, my gosh, everybody seems to be at each other's throats yeah. here in Washington. You know, the notion that we're going to potentially go into a government shutdown, Mike Turner and I work very closely together. But I do think I wish the House leadership would be spending a little more time on what would happen with a government shutdown, which makes us look bad around the world. And frankly, in a state like mine in Virginia, mm -hmm. where we have so many government workers, government contractors, it will be a disaster. And yet the attention coming out of the House leadership is on impeachment and putting forward things they know will not ever pass the Senate in any kind of bipartisan fashion. And I think that is part of the underlying unease that voters feel. So you believe we are headed for a government shutdown? I would like to say no, but we're eight or nine days away and we've not even been able to see the House pass the most basic defense appropriations bills. Mm -hmm. I hope and pray that uh, Speaker McCarthy will say, hey, I'm going to throw over the far right and I'm going to put together a bipartisan effort with the Democrats and mainstream Republicans to keep the government funding. I think that would get, again, 350, 400 votes. Senator, good to have you here in person. We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Actor and director Sean Penn is a co-director of a new documentary called Superpower. It's about President Zelensky and the war in Ukraine. Zelensky agreed to meet with Penn in person for the first time on camera on the same day Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Great, great that you are here. It's very important now, all this support. And I think you always, always the guys, I think, Americans has to hear. Mm -hmm. So I think you see that we are just ordinary people who want to live in, in our country. Yeah, and how are you here? It's, I mean, it's, it's so dangerous. To be here at this time in this country with you, with your countrymen, I mean, it's such, there's, there's so much inspiration to be had here. We spoke with Penn on Friday about his new film. In one of the clips, um, Andre Yermak, one of the top advisors to President Zelensky, says to you, you know, the U.S. position should be stronger. If the United States and Joe Biden doesn't do something now, essentially, he says America's over. That followed with a pretty robust financial investment by the United States, more than $50 billion, uh, pledges of weapons. But from what I've heard you say, you think the United States isn't doing enough. It is my absolute feeling that the caution with which the United States has pledged support, which seemed, in my reading of of, of uh, February 2022 was a <clears throat> like a lean on in the fear of nuclear conflict. Something I think all of us should look very carefully at and understand it, of course, is possible, and that's to be concerning. Uh, 
the likelihood is extremely low. And as one of our witnesses in the film uh, says, you know, are we going to let a gangster with nuclear weapons dictate the way we live? So I think that, and that the Ukrainians won't let him do that. In uh, the documentary, you spoke with a Ukrainian fighter pilot named Juice, who I understand was killed later in a training incident. Was your personal connection to him and his, the case he made to you part of why you are pushing this point on F-16 so strongly? I was pushing it when I was with Juice and he was alive. He dreamt of flying F-16s. I think that he was a man who was born into a time where he had to do this extreme thing and he did it with poise and, and skill and focus and, and compassion. And he, so he had come to Washington to lobby for the F-16s and also was buying helmets for his helicopter pilot friends on eBay here to bring back. Um, so it, it was like that. And then I suppose now, what, was it July that it was announced that there would now be an F-16 program, those resources Eventually, yeah. Yeah, over a long period of time. Uh, and what, a couple of weeks later, um, I got the message that he'd been killed. Uh, I, I, I think not only would Juice be alive today if we had been as bold as we like to claim to be historically as a country with our mm -hmm. principles, with our Republicans and our Democrats, with our leadership, the citizenry too, while we were putting all those Ukrainian flags out, we should have been as demand decisiveness in this case because at some point caution becomes cowardice. But there's still an opportunity mm -hmm. for us to do the right thing. 58% of Americans polled by CBS disapprove of the way Joe Biden is handling the situation with Russia and Ukraine. And I'm getting the sense from you, you're disappointed too. Yeah, I respect President Biden very much. There have been a couple of things that I think have been disasters up to this point. There's an, it should be an implicit understanding between private citizens and mm -hmm. leaders in government that, you know, there are things that I don't know about <laughs> things that should be, need to remain classified. Right. So every day, even when I was with Juice, I was privately thinking, yes, it's our job to fight this fight. But privately, I was thinking, but maybe they are doing it behind closed doors. And tomorrow we're going to wake up to that mm -hmm. squadron. Um, enough time has passed. I think it's been to date a tragic mistake. And, and I hope and encourage this president um, that he deserves the legacy of doing this properly. Polling also shows big majorities of Americans continue to support economic sanctions on Russia. 61 percent of Republicans, though, say the U.S. should not send weapons to Ukraine. 50% say the U.S. should not send aid and supplies to Ukraine. That is a big shift from where the Republican Party was in terms of in the past being very strong on Russia. Mm. But some of it in terms of the rhetoric reflects this sense that America needs to fix itself at home. How do you respond to, to that thinking? I think there's more than a compelling argument that would change those minds. Mm -hmm. And I understand why they're confused. I mean, I'm hoping in its little way that, that this film can help context. I would be confused if I hadn't had the opportunity to do this. Better communication of the why and the justification yeah, I think for the our, billions of dollars of yeah, If the spending. current leadership would just do one thing now, it would be the president saying to his cabinet, we are not spinning the story on Ukraine anymore. So... If it's about what are they capable of, we're going to let our commanders in Fresno at the Cal National Guard that's been doing joint ex military exercises with them for 30 years tell us what their capability is. And we're going to say it unfiltered to the American people. You end the documentary talking about this feeling of unity you had when you were in Ukraine and you compare it to what you see here at home. And you actually end on the images of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman, mm -hmm. um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, of Georgia. And you say, we're going backwards. Why do you think they symbolize that? I think that we've come to a point <clears throat> where 
we as, as the voters, we as the citizens have to look at our politicians and say, look, you're very smart. We agree with your policy. Um, why would you want to call it socialist? Why, why would you want to put up a middle finger to people who have a reaction to that? You're a leader. Just get the policy across. I'm not interested in these people self-celebrating or grandstanding. Jerks like me do enough of that. Leaders can't do that anymore. And so on the right, on the left, we have to demand that people actually are accountable for the, accountable and ourselves for the division that we have and break it. Thank you, Sean Penn, for sharing your work with us. And Superpower debuts on Paramount Plus on Monday. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Tune in to 60 Minutes tonight for its season premiere or an interview with Ukraine's President Zelensky right after football. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were United Auto Workers President Sean Fain, Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dinkle, CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto, Ohio Republican Congressman and Chair of the House Intelligence Committee Mike Turner, Virginia Democratic Senator and Chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee Mark Warner, and Co-Director of the documentary Superpower Sean Penn. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.